Kim Smiths, um, in, in the sense that uh, at the faculty meeting last night where we coordinate the, the various uh, talks and try to avoid overlap, um, Chuck was mentioning uh, that in North Carolina, uh, it's an example of a state that, because it doesn't have major urban areas, uh, really is disproportionately disadvantaged in terms of uh, Ryan White funding. So I'm, in, in addition to your thoughts about uh, where are we going with antiretroviral therapy, it might be interesting, Chuck, to have some comment. Uh, uh, Charles Hicks is a professor of medicine at Duke University. Appreciate your uh, introduction, Paul, and thanks for everybody for coming. These, these, you know, I, I do a fair amount of talking, and I think there's no question the audience I most like to speak to is people that come to IES USA meetings. They're, they're experienced in what they do. They're passionate about what they do. They care, and they're knowledgeable, and uh, most of them are awake, so it's a great audience. The topics so far have been, uh, and, and I have to give Donna and others credit, and uh, John and Paul for selecting the topics on the agenda today uh, because there are a lot of really interesting new things that we really haven't necessarily discussed in this venue before. And then there's me talking about initiation of antiretroviral therapy. So I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to breathe kind of fresh life into this? And hopefully there will be some uh, something of value and interest to you as we work our way uh, through this. Um, so let's, with that, begin. This is, uh, these are my disclosures, which are in the handout materials as well. Uh, I do clinical research, some of it sponsored by the uh, pharmaceutical industry, and also serve on scientific advisory boards for a number of companies. Uh, here are the objectives. I won't dwell on these. Again, they're available to you, and hopefully we'll cover them in sufficient detail as we move forward. So let's start, uh, you know, one of the things about PowerPoint, I'm old enough to remember when we used to have slides, you know, those carousels and stuff. And, you know, when you made your carousel, when you put the slides in, the talk was done. You didn't have to go to the back because the question you wrote wasn't quite right. And so this question has been, was written about uh, four minutes ago, and uh, I hope it's coherent. So it says the following, which statement about initial antiretroviral therapy, ART, Guidelines is correct. And the first says, antiretroviral therapy initiation is recommended irrespective of CD4 count. Number two says, antiretroviral therapy reduces male to female HIV transmission uh, in those on treatment, but not female to male transmission. Number three says, single tablet regimens are preferred over multiple tablet regimens in all cases. And the last one is initiation of antiretroviral therapy during treatment of an acute opportunistic infection is only appropriate if that OI is tuberculosis. So let's vote on these. By the way, uh, Joel Gallant picked the music for these, so if you have any concerns about it, Joel. All right. So the preponderance of the... Uh, Group suggested number one is correct, and I would agree with that, and let's uh, go through the material, and then we'll circle back to the question at the end. Now, I think when you're going to talk about initiation of therapy, especially initiation of therapy, when you're sitting down with a patient, you're going to try and explain to them why you want them to take these pills, especially if they're healthy and otherwise don't feel bad at all and are not used to taking medicines, it's worth 
taking a moment to review what it is you're really trying to accomplish. Sometimes we get caught up in the near-term measurable events, but it's kind of useful to take a global a look at what it is we're trying to do. So the T initial goal is we're trying to, by having people take antiretroviral agents, reduce HIV-associated morbidity, prolong duration and quality of survival. As a means to accomplish that, there are a couple of intermediate steps. One is to restore and preserve immunologic function. The second is uh, to maximally and durably suppress HIV RNA. And uh, in general, your lab may measure the, this uh, thing called virus load in different ways. Our laboratory recently uh, adopted an assay that can measure down to 20 copies. But your goal is to suppress replication so it's not present in plasma. And we all know that sometimes you get a little virus, but as long as it's flanked by undetectable values, these so-called blips are not problematic. And finally, and perhaps most recently recognized, is the effect of antiretroviral therapy on transmission. Now, there's a lot of tools available to us, and this slide, which originally was a pretty cool-looking slide, has become very cluttered because of my relatively modest uh, PowerPoint skills, but I've tried to keep it updated with new uh, drugs in there. And so I was a medical resident in the early 80s in, uh, in San Francisco and remember the first cases of this new and dreadful disease and watching, at the time, mostly young men die of a disease we had little or no understanding of. And the excitement in 1987 when the first drug to treat HIV, um, AZT, was introduced, and then it took four long years before we even had a second drug, in this case, DDI, and then you see we began to add additional agents, and we had to learn through hard work how to combine these, the importance of combining them, but also we had to get better drugs, because the first drugs were really very onerous. I do rem remember uh, starting people on AZT and saying, okay, you must take two of these every four hours. And the way we suggest to do it is you take two before you go to bed around 10 p.m. and set your alarm for 2 a.m. and then have a glass of water and two pills there. And you can just take them at two and go right back to sleep. And then, of course, you'll start your day at six. So set your alarm for six. And, and in retrospect, I thought, oh my God, did people actually do that? And some did. It was actually a remarkable thing. But I think what's happened more recently is not only do we have more tools available, but the emphasis has been on making the experience and the outcome for the person taking the pills much more easy to be successful with. And we're going to see the impact of that as we look at some of the new drugs and the response rate. So when we get to 2008, 2009, 2011, 2012, and later this year, 2013, what we're, we're going to see is drugs that are more active, drugs that have many fewer side effects, drugs for which proper dosing is very much simpler, and that's translated into substantial increases in the proportion of patients that succeed. It used to be that in 1996, 97, when we first measured viral load and we saw someone suppressed, you, you would get a result that someone was undetectable and you'd want to share it with all the other people back in the clinic. Look. Mr. Jones actually can take all those pills and his viral loads below 10,000, which was our cutoff uh, in the earliest versions of the virus load test. Now it's kind of shocking when somebody starts and they don't suppress. 
we want to go, what's happened? Why is this person not succeeding with their antiretroviral therapy? And that's testimony to the improved quality of the drugs we use. Now, uh, Eric, in his CROI update, mentioned uh, the new integrase inhibitor, dolutegravir, and that comes on the scene with two drugs already in place, raltegravir, which is fairly familiar. It's a drug that's administered twice daily and has worked extremely well, uh, but with more and more emphasis on once-daily dosing. Uh, more recently, elvitegravir, available only as a combination tablet, uh, was introduced, and you can see here that in the two clinical trials which led to licensing, the drug uh, was measured against so-called standard of care therapy, either a Fovren's-based single-tablet regimen or a boosted atazanavir protease inhibitor-based regimen. And you'll note there that the uh, L-vitegravir arm in yellow is quite comparable to the other two so-called standard of care drugs, and hence this drug was marketed and is licensed, uh, and I won't use the trade name because that's generally frowned upon from the podium. But it's now part of our choices for initial therapy. It is a single tablet regimen. It works well. It's quite expensive. There are potential drug interaction issues, so it's an imperfect drug. And to the list of integrase inhibitor options later this year, probably almost certainly by August, Dolutegravir will be introduced initially as a standalone drug, which is actually kind of nice to be able to use dolutegravir. Typically, for initial therapy, it would be a pair. It would be paired up with two nucleosides. And here, data from two uh, clinical trials that have been presented: the Spring Two and the Single trial, in which you see that the dolutegravir arms. If you just look at the first row, with 88% response rates are as good as, or perhaps even slightly better than, raltegravir, the initial integrase inhibitor that was made available, or the combination tablet, tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz. So this looks like a really terrific drug, a really terrific addition. It's one pill a day. It has no food restrictions. It can, because it's going to be available as a single standalone drug, be paired with a variety of different other drugs, and I think uh, people are eagerly awaiting its release. The manufacturer has stated that their goal is to also have it available as a single tablet regimen combined with a Bacavir and 3TC, uh, potentially by the end of the calendar year. Now, as we look at these new drugs and the proportion of people that are successful, and we talk to patients in the clinic about how well they tolerate the agents, I think it's kind of interesting to go back to the birth, if you will, of the guidelines about 15 years ago and see how, the, how things have evolved over time. So if we go back to, to 1998, uh, you'll note that treatment was really uh, proposed as, uh, as definitely something to do for those with very low CD4 counts, less than 200, or if they had symptomatic HIV infection, an AIDS-defining condition. As time evolved, as we learned more about the pathophysiology of HIV, and I think perhaps most importantly, as the drugs we had to treat it got better and better, the, the threshold and the requirements, if you will, for initiating the idea of starting therapy began to change. And so that by uh, 2001, uh, the idea of offering at higher CD4 counts begin to 
enter the discussion. And by 2008, uh, evidence had accumulated so that treatment seemed like an appropriate thing to do for those with CD4 counts less than 350. By 2009, it was up to 500. And in 2012, the whole idea of having a CD4 threshold, have you suffered enough to qualify to get treatment, finally disappeared in the rearview mirror. And now the notion is having HIV infection, having ongoing viral replication is sufficient evidence for starting uh, treatment. And again, I, I, I see that as a balance between our better understanding of the impact of therapy and the availability of therapies that have fewer both acute and chronic uh, cumulative adverse events associated, associated with them. The most recent version of the Department of Health and Human Services guidelines are shown here. I would draw attention to the, uh, the little balloon up on the top that says, changes reflect increasing evidence of the harmful impact of ongoing HIV replication on AIDS and non-AIDS disease progression and the benefit of effective ART in preventing secondary transmission. So not only is it that it works better, it's better tolerated, but now we have evidence that it also reduces the likelihood that an HIV-infected person will pass that virus on to another. And the IAS USA uh, most recently updated guidelines from 2012, which will be updated again this year, uh, or actually next year, uh, all adults with HIV infection should be offered antiretroviral therapy regardless of CD4 count and the rationale uh, of increasing evidence that viral replication itself is problematic and evidence from clinical trials. So I, I think the weight of the evidence, it's almost now unchallenged that offering, um, in fact, endorsing the idea of antiretroviral therapy irrespective of CD4 count is the standard by which we practice. Which of the following statements describes reasons for recommending initiation of antiretroviral therapy for all persons with HIV infection, irrespective of CD4 count? So this is kind of a summary. First, antiretroviral therapy improves survival in HIV-infected persons when started at low or high CD4 counts. Ongoing viral replication has been shown to be independently associated with higher mortality rates. The more accumulated years of viral replication, the higher mortality rate. This is even independent of its effect on the immune system. Number three says suppressive antiretroviral therapy has been shown to reduce the rate of HIV transmission. Number four, the lower the CD4 count, the greater the likelihood of neurocognitive impairment in persons with HIV infection, or are all of those correct? So let's vote quickly. Yes, okay, that's a pretty good response. Now let's go through some of the evidence that supports the first four statements. Why, and, and in essence, these together form the basis for the recommendation, why start antiretroviral therapy in all persons with HIV infection? We, we do not yet have, although we may ultimately have, a randomized prospective controlled trial to affirm the value of starting antiretroviral therapy in persons with high CD4 counts. But what we do have is an, a large accumulated experience and careful analyses 
done in database and cohort studies that uh, I think provide strong support for this notion. Here's the NA Accord study, which looked at the, uh, a large cohort of patients. And again, these are patients for whom the decision to start therapy was made independently by their provider. And this was not done as part of a clinical trial. So there are obviously other factors that have gone into that. There may be selection bias in the different populations. All of the concerns that we have with the methodologic issues of retrospective cohort research. But the results are pretty convincing in this very carefully followed cohort. Deferred antiretroviral therapy, that is not starting it in all patients, was associated with a 69% increase in the risk of all-cause mortality in those who started between 350 and 500 versus those that did not. And the number was even greater when you compared persons with CD4s greater than 500 at initiation of antiretroviral therapy compared to the population that deferred initiation until the CD4 count fell below 500. In that case, a 94% increase in the risk of death among those who deferred therapy. Uh, Mike Mugavero at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, who was an ID fellow at Duke and who we, we really wish had stayed, but he went to UAB. He's a wonderful guy, brilliant, uh, hardworking, just uh, terrific in, in many regards. Uh, published a paper with colleagues using the Scenix um, cohort of databases and um, using a very nicely fashioned statistical method, uh, created a, a, an entity uh, that was termed viremia copy years. And in essence, this is a measure of how much viral exposure an individual patient has accrued over time. So for example, if one patient had a viral load of 100,000 for one year, and a second patient had a viral load of 50,000 for two years, that degree of viral exposure by the viremia copy year method would be thought to be comparable. So it's attempting to measure the height, the amount of virus, and the duration of time that that virus has been replicating. And uh, I think it's a good concept because it removes, well, how much did that virus lower the CD4 count? It's isolating, as best it can be done, the impact uh, that's a direct consequence of viral replication. And here in this paper that was published in Clinical Infectious Disease, uh, you may or may not be able to see that the, the higher the viremia copy year score, which at the bottom is a viremia copy year score greater than 7 log 10, so more exposure to virus over a longer period of time, the greater was the probability that that increased mortality. So just using all-cause mortality, death, as the indicator, there was a clear relationship between viral exposure and uh, mortality, um, making a strong argument that getting rid of virus is likely to have a substantial clinical benefit. The charter study from the University of California, San Diego, which has looked at HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, uh, has analyzed the likelihood and the gravity of the neurocognitive impairment as a function of the nadir CD4 count, the lowest CD4 count a person has experienced, and has demonstrated 
that the lower the, the CD4 count nadir, the lower your CD4 count has fallen to, the greater is the likelihood that there will be more measurable neurocognitive decline. So this argues again, let's diagnose people earlier, let's get them on therapy, let's prevent them from developing very low CD4 counts, and by so doing, perhaps we'll uh, reduce the likelihood of HIV-associated neurocognitive impairment. And finally, the HIV Prevention Trials Network 052 study, which demonstrated uh, an extraordinary and gratifying 96% reduction in HIV transmission by introducing antiretroviral therapy earlier compared to those who deferred therapy until some preset CD4 was, was reached. In this case, it was a CD4 of 250 and showed unequivocally that in doing so, rates of HIV transmission were diminished. Now, this study of heterosexual couples is also informative because about half of the couples, the male was the infected partner, and in about half of the couples, the infected partner was female and showed no meaningful difference in the impact of antiretroviral therapy when uh, addressing male-to-female transmission versus female-to-male transmission. Now, uh, there was a time when this little teeter-totter thing kind of was somewhat balanced. Should we defer therapy? Should we start therapy? Now, if we did this, it would sort of be like me sitting on there with like a three-year-old child who would fly up through the air as soon as I sat on the teeter-totter. I think the evidence for initiating uh, antiretroviral therapy is clearly overwhelming. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, and I think we wish we had that prospective randomized clinical trial, and as many of you know, the START study uh, has been designed to try and do that, and many clinics represented in this room, I suspect, including our clinic at Duke, are participating in the START study. There are, there are several thousand patients that have already been randomized. I have some concern that given this kind of tidal wave of energy behind the idea of starting therapy earlier, it may become increasingly difficult to ultimately reach the uh, targeted enrollment goals, but it, it may be that we will have the so-called gold standard answer to the question if the START study is able to be completed in the way that it was originally designed. Now, those of you who work in the clinic setting, the pharmacists who do a lot of the counseling patients, the HIV providers who discuss the uh, appropriateness of starting therapy, realize there's much to this. And those of us who are living with the 15 or maybe 20-minute appointment, uh, I think, recognize that this is not something that lends itself to a brief discussion with the patient. I think for you to be appropriately motivating and to get patients to own the treatment, I always like to say, when the, one of my patients decides to go on therapy, I've kind of been the navigator, but they're the ones that ultimately make the decision. So when they go home, they don't say to their spouse, well, he told me to take this. It's more, I have decided that this is the right treatment for me, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a commitment to do it. And it's not easy, and it takes some time. Now, we're at a pretty good place. Where we are now, I mean, when I was seeing HIV patients in the 80s, this was not even a dream. This seems so far from what could happen that it's hard to even recognize today where we once were 30 years ago. 
Let's uh, answer the next uh, audience response question. And uh, this addresses one of the things that's been done to try and make it easier, that is the development of so-called single tablet regimens. Which of the following statements are true about single tablet regimens as antiviral treatment for HIV-infected persons? Number one, single tablet regimens ensure patients take all of their antiretroviral treatment or none. Partial adherence is not an issue. Number two, single tablet regimens are usually significantly less expensive than multiple tablet regimens because you get everything there in just one tablet. Uh, number three says patients treated with single tablet regimens are more likely to have adverse outcomes related to adherence since they miss more of the regimen with each missed dose. You're not just missing one of the pills, you're missing the entire regimen. Number four, persons switching from single tablet regimens to multiple tablet regimens are significantly more likely to have viral rebound after switching compared to those who remain on single tablet regimens. So let's vote on this one. All right, so we have a little variability on this answer. Just over half said that one of the good things about this is you get assured, complete adherence. And that's the answer I like, too. But let's go over a little bit of data to kind of flesh out some of the other responses, if you will. Eric talked about uh, the new version, if you will, of tenofovir. As it turns out, this drug actually was identified a number of years ago and for a variety of reasons was put on the shelf and now has been resurrected because of the advantages which Eric shared with you, primarily the ability to give a much lower dose with the hope that that diminishes toxicity of the drug and allows you to make single tablet regimens that are not overwhelmingly large in terms of the number of milligrams. And so we see, and don't pretend like you can't read the trade names, but just look at, these are the combination tablets, and you can see that we currently have three, uh, two that are NNRTI-based, one based on a boosted integrase inhibitor, but um, it is hoped that by the end of uh, the next year or two, we will have additional, including, and not shown on here, a dolutegravir-based single-tablet regimen that works with a Bacavir and 3TC. So there's a lot of energy being put behind the idea of making combination tablets. Patients seem to like it. Providers seem to like it. The people that make all of the drugs seem to like it because they get all of the revenue. Now, uh, our currents include, as noted, uh, efavirenz and ropivirine-based NNRTI regimens. We currently have uh, tenofovir, FTC, L-vitegravir, cobacistat, four-drug in one tablet, integrase inhibitor regimen. As Eric showed you, there's work being done to substitute the smaller milligram size version of tenofovir and then the dolutegravir, bacavir, 3TC. But there's also work, because the tenofovir uh, component may drop down to as few as eight milligrams of medicine in the tablet, the larger sizes that were required for protease inhibitor regimens are starting to become less concerning in terms of making a pill that you have to eat with a knife and fork versus something you can actually swallow. And so development is well underway for both darunavir and atazanavir to be added to uh, cobicistet, perhaps with uh, the new version of tenofovir as well. 
So on the one hand, I think we have this push toward multiple tablet regimens. But as Stuart mentioned, talking about hepatitis C, uh, treatment of these things is very expensive. And where in the current era funding for expensive new treatments may emerge, especially when we plus up about 30,000 people needing antiretroviral therapy every year, how we sustain the revenue needed to do that is an important question. And the availability of generic versions of some of our important drugs, I think it's really going to push the envelope. Here's a, uh, one projection of when drugs may become uh, generic. Each company zealously guards its patent and employs teams of attorneys to extend the patent life for as long as possible. If you have a drug that makes $500 million a year and the lawyer is able to get a two-week extension, he's paid his lifetime salary and that of five of his colleagues by that single act alone. So these are projections. And you can see one of the important drugs that is nearing, if not already reached, its patent expiration is a sovereigns. And that's potentially going to be a game changer. So now we have these two things. We have this single tablet regimen, and we have the economic reality that we may have to start breaking these things up. So here was a trial presented at Croy in Atlanta, trying to see if there were reasons to be concerned that patients who've grown used to a single tablet regimen, who are now being asked to take more than one pill once a day, would in fact have problems. This was done in Denmark by the author's admission, a very well-behaved group of patients. And without going into the details of the slide, because I'm running out of time, the observation was that in the almost 500 patients who switched from a single tablet regimen to the individual components of the combination, there did not appear to be increased proportion of virologic failures. So at least in this group, it looked like that transition, which may be mandated by cost, could be made safely. OK, we have one other question, about three other slides, and then we'll be done. And I'm going to run a couple of minutes over, so Don, I'm going to hit my fingers with a ruler, but I want to finish. OK, so the next question says, in which of the following clinical settings is it appropriate to delay initiation of antiretroviral therapy, assuming the results of HIV resistance tests are available, and you're getting ready to start treatment. So number one, a newly diagnosed HIV-infected person admitted to the hospital with tuberculosis. Should we delay starting antiretroviral therapy? How about a newly diagnosed HIV-infected patient hospitalized with cryptococcal meningitis? A newly diagnosed patient admitted with pneumocystis pneumonia? A newly diagnosed patient who has a K103 mutation? indicating high-level resistance to efavirenz, or number five, a person with chronic HIV infection who returns to care after having been lost to follow-up for two years. Let's vote quickly, because Paul's coming up with the hook. And I'm going to show you a little bit of data from Croy that speaks to this issue. All right, so there's, again, a range of, question, of, of responses here. And let's take a quick look at the data. And the data suggests that the one opportunistic infection for which we feel quite sure 
that deferring initiation is clinically appropriate is cryptococcal meningitis. Here was a study. Uh, this is first an ACTG study that showed that starting antiretroviral therapy within two weeks of the indicator illness being identified was associated with improved outcomes. In this case, about 65% of the people had pneumocystis. This was presented by Andrew and published by Andrew Zalopa. But more recently, the study from Africa, which in persons with uh, confirmed cryptococcal meningitis, starting therapy early or deferring therapy till at least four weeks after discharge from the hospital demonstrated a clear advantage to deferring therapy, probably related to the effects of inflammation that occur with the iris syndrome, with basilar meningitis, and its overall impact on CNS functioning. So cryptococcal meningitis is a disease in which waiting is important. The last slide, and I think this is the most important slide, says half of what we have taught you is wrong, and unfortunately, we do not know which half. When I did this talk 10 years ago, and if I looked at what I said, I would be aghast at how many wrong things I said. And this just tells us if we're in medicine, we're buying into the idea we have to be students forever. It's the patients that come to us who care, who, who want you to care for them, who are trusting their lives and health to you, are, are, are saying, you, you're the one who knows what's right and what's not right, and we know it's changing, and you've accepted the obligation to keep that updated. So that's my last slide. That's the end of the presentation, and I'm two minutes, 40 seconds over. Sorry. One of the best inventions uh, ever is this little thing with the lights on the, on the podium. So not only does the speaker know when he is over, <laughs> but so do you. Uh, so it adds a great social pressure, and we do like to keep on time because unless you don't want to have lunch. I was hoping we could um, skip the questions. <laughs> we'll, 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 uh, we might shorten the questions a bit. Um, uh, we've heard a little bit today about uh, uh, nukes-bearing regimens. Any thoughts on where you stand uh, with that? Yeah, so the question is initial therapy and whether or not nucleosides are part of it. And as you know, in, in the... Um, data to date and certainly in the recommendations that are published, uh, two nucleosides plus another drug remains the standard against which others are measured. I think there was a tremendous amount of interest and energy in getting rid of the nucleosides when we were using drugs that had much more long-term cumulative toxicity. That's not to say that our current favorite, tenofovir and FTC, is not also potentially problematic as it has to do with bone loss and renal uh, concerns over the long term, but I think a lot of the impetus behind the idea of getting away from uh, two nukes has has kind of diminished, and I also think we've had a couple of disappointing results. The main one I'm thinking about was the raltegravir-darunavir mm -hmm. combination, where for reasons that are still a little bit uncertain, response rates were dramatically diminished when they didn't use nucleosides. So my sense is I don't think it's really broken, and I'm happy with our current uh, selection of two nukes plus. Great. Um, one thing that we like to do, actually we have to do, um, is ask questions before and after. So uh, Chuck, do you want to ask oh, yeah. this? Okay. Uh, yep. So this was my initial question that was written on the fly as I was about to come up here. And uh, we had an initial response. We're going to re-ask the question now. Please vote on this. And it says, which statement regarding initial antiretroviral therapy guidelines is correct? The first one says, 
ART initiates recommended irrespective of CD4 count. The second says there's a difference in how much antiretroviral therapy impacts HIV transmission from men to women, but not women to men. Uh, number three, single tablet regimens are preferred over multiple tablet regimens in all cases. And number four, initiation of antiretroviral therapy during acute infection is only appropriate for persons with TB. Which one is correct? Okay, well, that's a pretty good response. <laughs> Way to go, team. I, I do like this uh, before and after that yeah. we can do now as a routine part of our ARS. It's, it's great to see the trends. Um, I'm not sure there's a statistical difference between 94 and 100 percent. Kind of makes you feel like people. It is away. nice. Yeah. There, there are a couple questions here already about um, non-progressors or elite controllers. Um, uh, thoughts on initiating therapy in somebody with a fully normal uh, CD4 count of either a low or non-detectable viral load. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Again, I think reflects the audience of people who take care of patients and have experienced these things and grappled with these questions. Um, the argument for initiating therapy in that population stems primarily from measures of inflammation and immune activation. You can show that even in persons with normal CD4 counts who are HIV infected, but the degree of HIV replication is below the level of our current uh, measurement standards, that, that there is sufficient viral, uh, ongoing viral replication that it has caused at least some degree of immune activation and uh, something of an inflammatory response. And we believe that to be the mediator of the increased rates of coronary artery disease, certain malignancies, liver disease, renal disease. And although I would say the, the evidence that this is sufficiently operative in those who are elite controllers uh, justifies initiating antiretroviral therapy, um, my personal approach in that population is to uh, describe what I believe to be the state of our knowledge, to tell them that if it were me, I would probably take antiretroviral therapy, but I think a reasonable person could decide to defer as well. One might even in that setting, if, if the circumstances were appropriate for a reasonable person to say, I, I just don't feel like I want to take these medicines in the current state of affairs, and I think that would be for an individual to do. As a policy, I would say in general, I would still recommend the therapy. Chuck, the vast majority of people in the audience are working in a blue state. Um, there's somebody from Iowa, at least one person. It's also a blue state, I think. Um, talk about, just, just briefly, the yeah. challenge that you have with Ryan White in North Carolina yeah. uh, versus what the experience is in California or, or Illinois. Well, I, you know, I was an army brat and we moved all over the place. We actually never lived in the South and I was working in Washington, D.C. and then uh, I was looking for a job and I looked all around and my wife said, I don't care where we go as long as it's not the South. She had like every negative, she's from Southern California, she had like every negative stereotype and of course we ended up in, in North Carolina. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, it, up until the last election, our state had had a Democratic governor for the preceding 25 years. The legislature was mostly Democratic. Sometimes it was split. 
But in the last election, uh, the Republicans became governor in both houses of the legislature are now Republican. And there are some sweeping changes that are ongoing as a consequence of that, that many of you may have seen Charlie Vanderhorst uh, being arrested for protesting at the Capitol. I, I think that's one of the highlights of his life now is that that <laughs> happened and his picture, which is now his on his Facebook, Facebook picture, page. Yeah. And, but, it, but it's a reflection, if you will, of the priorities being much different uh, than they were previously and our struggles to sustain levels of services that are sufficient to the task. So between Duke and UNC, we're coming up on 4,000 patients in care and we're eight miles apart. And uh, about 40% of them are, are in the uninsured Medicaid category. And uh, although our ADAP is currently healthy, we've had periods of time with long waiting lists. So, so this is really concerning and worrisome. And the difference between the haves and have-nots is uh, increasingly troubling. And in those states in which these priorities have shifted, and I don't want to get too political here, uh, I really worry we're leaving behind the most disadvantaged in our population. And there's just a lack of kindness and concern for people that I find rather appalling. Thank you. Chuck, that, that was great. Uh, we only have a, a minute or so left, so maybe really quickly. One, uh, one idea is that if it's true that the cumulative viral load is important, uh, is there a role for continuing even partially effective therapy to try to, over time, maintain that kind of a question that we thought we answered a long time ago? Yeah, fortunately, there aren't so many of those patients where we can't gain complete control, but I still firmly believe that uh, there's strong evidence that being on a partially suppressive regimen versus not being on antiretroviral therapy uh, accrues benefits to the person on the partially suppressive regimen. That's always tempered by the fact that being on a non-suppressive regimen is allowing the virus to change, to adapt to its circumstances, which in general means more resistance and uh, challenges when new drugs become available that they may still retain activity. I have three patients I can think of right now who are not suppressed. One of them has HIV-2 and the other two have HIV-1 who are older people who have been on therapy for a long time, had some errors made in their initial therapy. We didn't know which half was wrong in their initial therapy and they're still alive right. and they're mostly okay but uh, I, I think uh, that's the best you can do sometimes. Great. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you.